0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Okay, so uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome. Uh, My name is uh, Mira, Mira Young. Um, Some of you are familiar with me, and I'm a longtime member of Common Ground, and uh, Mark is on retreat this week, so um, I'm uh, taking this seat. Um, I'm uh, also, uh, in addition to being a longtime member of the Twin City uh, Vipassana Sangha here in Common Ground, I'm also uh, a meditation MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher at the U. And I do some other teaching in the community. And I'm a psychotherapist in private practice that integrates these at Riversway Meditation Center. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I've also been trained as a community Dharma leader um, at the same program as Mark at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. So my understanding is, um, how many people have been attending this series of The Wise Heart by Jack Kornfield? Can I just get a sense of that? So some people are, are, have been coming and some of you haven't yet. so it doesn't matter, but I might, I'm just going to refer to that. Um, when I love the Wise Heart in Jack Cornfield's book on a guide to the Universal Teachings of Buddhist Psychology, and I'm, I'm delighted to say I'm part of a co-founding circle for a uh, Midwest Meditation and Psychotherapy Institute and I'll tell you about a workshop that's coming up later, the Dharma Teacher. So uh, tonight's talk is uh, on the mother of all Buddhas, form, emptiness, and compassion. And these are teachings that come from the Mahayana Heart Sutra and are also based on some explorations or reflections on Chapter 6 from Wise Heart, the cornfield book I just mentioned, uh, which has to do with the universal to the personal. So talking about absolute, the absolute, the Buddha nature, the awareness, the wholeness that's already is our nature, and the reality, the relative reality of daily life, of getting up in the morning, of paying the bills, of me of going to work, of you know, trying to live a, a life, right? So how I want to keep dropping an inquiry and hopefully not rattle on too long to leave some time for discussion or to have you to, to just rest in what on earth do teachings about emptiness and absolute reality and Buddha nature and doing a meditation which we did which was from the Tibetan book of living and dying, you know, whatever that means, entering this clear light and not being lost in all of the stuff that usually fills our minds with relative life and reality. How does that inform my life? The, the, what is? Are these just esoteric teachings, or are these teachings that can bring freedom and liberation to us in the here and now? I was very deeply moved, confused, and awestruck by these teachings when I first heard them. And I am not intimately Practicing the Heart Sutra, but I have had the times where it has—I've—I've I've heard it or parts of it—and—and and also um, there's another teaching from the third Zen patriarch that I'll share, which talk about the this dropping all of that storying, all of that selfing that causes us so much of our suffering is mind-made and is our, what we keep um, reliving over and over with, without the mindfulness to support us. Um, the chant that we did comes from out of that Heart Sutra. It's the last part of it. And uh, uh, another longtime Common Ground person that used to come here, Kim, had taught it to us when she returned from being in Bosnia and being with the children of trauma. And her heart was so wide open. And she came back, and she came to the old common ground, and she led us in this, in this chant. And what, what I find very moving about the emptiness and, uh, is that the kind of emptiness and the the stripped-down bareness of of the Buddha nature, of being able to start to connect with that, even for brief moments, flickers, is that it actually develops our compassion. So I want to share this reading. This is Ken McLeod from An Arrow to the Heart. It's his commentary on the Heart Sutra. Describes it this way. Why is emptiness such an important teaching in this school of Buddhism. The short answer is, is that emptiness opens the door to a qualitatively different kind of compassion. Compassion is usually understood as an emotion. But the kind of compassion that an awakened one, is often called, or the bodhisattva of compassion, represents is compassion as presence. Compassion is presence. Emptiness frees us from concerns about who we are, what others may think, or what we should or should not do. At the same time, it brings a clarity that enables us to know what to do, moment by moment, to respond to the suffering and struggles of the world. That this compassion is present. That we can respond to the sufferings of the world, including our own. Now, how many of us here, you know, the overwhelming suffering? You know, we we witnessed the um, what was happening in Egypt, and, and you know, and some of the violence, and then now some of the, the freedoms, and now the uncertainty. We're, we're listening on the news every day about what's happening in Libya. We're hearing about, you know, more more. Um, of the, the, the fighting and the wars, and people being shipped out right now to Kuwait and other parts. You know, there's just so much. The economy, the level of suffering sometimes is so overwhelming. So, um, and then here at home, uh, there's a couple of, of very close Dharma friends here in this community. Um, one may be living their last month. Of cancer, you know, you know, beautiful, beautiful people serving and living so, so beautifully, and and the unexpected cancer diagnosis. You know, how how do we open to it all? So I'm going to share a little more about on this. Um, I'm going to read you part of this and share a little more. about the mother of all Buddhas. Before I do that, I I, I love poetry. And I I really have to um, restrain myself, because I found so much good stuff. (laughs) And I love it. And I'm not going to overindulge, hopefully. But this is from um, Rainier Maria Rilke, the Duono Elegy 8, just a little part of it. And isn't it interesting that in opening to compassion, to really coming home to our Buddha nature, we're actually, to be fully alive, we're also fully aware of death. They're not separate. Never, not for a single day, do we let the space before us be so unbounded that the blooming of one flower is forever. We are always making it into a world. We're always making it into something. We're always making it into a world and never letting it be nothing. The pure, the unconstructed, which we breathe and endlessly know and need not crave. The pure, the unconstructed, which we breathe and endlessly know and need not crave. a little more before I read you the sutta. Part of it. This is from Joanna Macy. How many folks have heard of Joanna Macy? Um, she's an activist, an ecologist, a Dharma teacher, um, a real transformer. Um, I highly recommend her her work. And uh, um, she's an elder in the in the meditation world. And uh, just a, a transformer of how to meet the suffering, how to work with the, the fact that the planet may be dying and all of this. Um, she was at a workshop um, some a while back on Buddhist psychology called the Abhidhamma. Um, actually, I think Steve Armstrong, a teacher, will be coming here and talking on the, some of the Abhidhamma um, soon. But uh, it was very, very specific. For her, it was very dry. It was really, she was at this, um, this uh, workshop or seminar. She said um, that my encounter with the mother of all Buddhas was preceded by a dreary spell of studying the Abhidhamma, a caniconical body of thought written three centuries after the Buddha. She said, My head swam. I was confused and bored with all this attention to hypothetical dharmas. And, little, and a little irritated, too. To view them as building blocks of reality struck me as reductionistic. And scholarly hair-splitting reminded me of the church fathers. She said, I, I, was stayed, I didn't stay sullen for long, she said. The next semester, there was a teaching and a presence that broke into my life, just as, as it did in India, in Buddhist India back at the first century of the Common Era. I was reading a scripture from the dawn of Mahayana Buddhism, a perfection of wisdom Sutra, that came that, that her name too, her name was Prajna Paramita. Prajna Paramita, perfection of wisdom. not a historical figure, but a symbolic embodiment of true insight, as she was called the mother of all Buddhas. It was she who brought them forth and nursed them to enlightenment. So in her mind, she was saying, stop it to the analytical. You don't break free of the self by dissecting its components, she said. The separated dharmas just busy your empty minds. They're empty, empty of their reality. Emptiness or sunya is one of her names. Wisdom is about relationship. It's about the compassion. That comes when we realize our deep relatedness. <laughs> this compassionate, liberating illumination of our, connect, our conventional universe through subjectiveless, objectiveless knowing, the mother of Buddhas, Prajnaparamita, always maintains a motherly mind consecrated to the constant protection, education, and maturing of conscious beings, guiding them along the path of embracing love, never succumbs to fear, anxiety, depression, is never overwhelmed by the strange adventure of awareness, of relativity, mundane form, the sublime and formless. So quite quite a, a being this mother <laughs> but when I when I read this I just felt like wow you know when it comes to liberation and I happen to be a mother on the relative level and I found that that has really opened my heart you know because it demanded of me to let go of what I want what I need when my son was a just born, I remember having this moment where, and I even called a friend of mine who's a Zen was a Zen, uh, was a Zen uh, teacher, priest at the time, and I said, "Oh my God, I just said, I just feel like I'm the mother of all beings. I had the the dog, and I had the baby, and I was there." And it's like if I wanted to take a shower, forget about it. If I wanted to do whatever, forget about it. And 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 there was that I don't like this. I wanna just be who I am. And I and I came to motherhood in my mid thirties and I'm like, you know, I've had my life, I do what I want, when I want. And then there was the surrender. And in that I just was like, Oh, yeah. You know, of course it contracts and expands, right? But, you know, but that experience of, of, of letting go and into just, just being with what is. Um, this is from Lex Hickson, who wrote a book on the Mother of All Buddhas. Voidness frees us, of all things, from being pinned down, frozen into static and inadequate forms by our habitual misconceptions and misperceptions. So we get caught. How many of us we get caught in our perceptions, in our habitual ways of relating? And I'm going to take it down to a real basic level here. You know, how do we create our reality? The other day I was at the Midtown Y. I don't know if any of you go there, but the Midtown Y at five o'clock in the afternoon is can be a hell realm. <laughs> you know, depending on your mind state. First of all, you try to get into that parking lot and you watch all your greed, hatred, and aversion arise <laughs> as you buy for that parking spot. And you're like, you know, going around and you know, you're eyeing other drivers and you know, and I'm I, I'm gonna nab it. I actually was leaving the parking lot and I was happy to give away my spot on the end other end of it yesterday. And uh Somebody was so desperate for a spot at that time of day, they drove in the wrong way on that particular lane and nabbed my sma- spot like two other drivers were waiting behind <laughs> you know <what> me. Mean? <laughs> and I, I just felt this compassion. I get it. I really get it. You know. Um, and and when and then in the locker room, the law of the locker room, that you know, if there's if there's People in the locker room. Who is it? You know, you walk in. The next person that walks in is in the locker next to you. So you're like this, trying to get dressed, trying to get your stuff, and they come in, and you're wedged in with women on both sides of the locker. So, so this is a, a thing where I watched my mind just get irritated, and I projected that. I saw other people; they were mad too. They weren't looking at me. Nobody was smiling. You know, everybody's in there you know my spot in the locker my stuff on the bench you know my this and i and then i noticed it oh oh i'm i'm creating through this <coughs> irritation all that's happening here is that it's 5 in the afternoon it's crowded everybody wants to be here and then i overheard someone make a comment yeah probably we'll start to not be so bad as the weather gets nicer, you know, like this is the peak of it, you know the end of the winter, everybody jammed in there, everybody trying to lose their Christmas pounds. Okay. so how we create the reality? you know, how does absolute reality help when you feel like killing in the parking lot you know when when you're tired, you're irritable, you know to remember with that compassion, you know. That, that, that this isn't worth it. This is, this is how it is. We're all suffering. We're all reacting. So what, what is this um, Heart Sutra? So I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read some of, most of it here. So this is actually a discourse between the awakened Bodhisattva, the Buddha, and some of his disciples. And he is sharing the Dharma with them. This was written five hundred years after the life of the Buddha. And one translator says that, you know, five hundred years of very intensive meditation, and this was the next turning of the Dharma wheel that went from the Theravadan to the Mahayana. I am not a Buddhist scholar, so I apologize for any errors. This is one translation. He's talking to his disciple Shariputra. Oh Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. That which is form is emptiness. That which is emptiness is form. Feeling does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from feeling. That which is feeling is emptiness. That which is emptiness is feeling. Perception does not differ from emptiness. Empty does not, emptiness does not differ from perception. That which is perception is emptiness. That which is emptiness is perception. Mental formations do not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from mental formations. Those are mental formations are emptiness. Those which are emptiness are mental formations. Consciousness does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from consciousness. That which is consciousness is emptiness. And that which is emptiness is consciousness. Here's Sariputra. All dharmas are fundamentally empty, They do not arise, they do not cease, are not tainted, or are not pure, do not increase or decrease. Therefore, in emptiness there is no form, no feeling, no perception, no mental formations, no consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no idea, no no emotion, no body consciousness, no mind consciousness, no ignorance, and no end to ignorance. No mental formations, no end to mental formations, no consciousness and no six senses, no contact, no end to contact, no feeling, no no feeling, no craving, no end to craving, no clinging, no end to clinging, no becoming, no end death, no, no suffering, no cause of suffering, no end of suffering, no path, no wisdom, no attainment, nothing to be attained, nothing to attain, bodhisattvas grounded in perfect understanding. Have no obstacles in their mind. With no obstacles, there is no fear. Far from erroneous views, ultimate nirvana, and then the chant. So just take a moment. Jack Cornfield in the chapter six on emptiness quotes the Heart Sutra. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. Yet form is form, and emptiness is emptiness. Our life has universal and personal nature. Both dimensions must be respected if we are to be happy and free. The universal dimension is the big picture. When we remember the selflessness of all things, our life falls into perspective. The universal dimension reminds us that all things on Earth are transitory, tentative, appearing out of emptiness, and then disappearing. Shakespeare wrote All the World's a Stage. I, I got to see um, A Winter's Tale at the Guthrie. Have any of you seen that? Um, it's, a, it's an amazing production. Um, and. We happen to know of, uh, a friend of a friend who was in the play, but this is a play of a man who's a king who becomes completely, psychotically deluded in jealousy. He imagines that his queen has um, betrayed him and, you know, had an affair with his brother. Uh, it's either a brother or a dear friend, another king, and he, he, he imagine this so completely you know he's hearing the voices he's seeing the images he keeps obsessing about it and then he literally creates this incredible tragedy you know where where everything that is near and dear to him is lost or dies as a result of this mind made confusion literally possessed by jealousy you know how could emptiness have helped this guy out you know how can we Keep ourselves, awaken ourselves from these dramas. How many of us even, you know, get lost in imagining things and suffering over them that haven't even happened yet, you know, that we think about. Um, some of the clients I, I work with, wonderful people, you know, and I, I myself too. I imagine all of these things. You know, our minds tend to go to look for what's wrong, and we can really get caught in it. What if and then and this won't work out and does anyone here do this like <laughs> sound familiar? Another thing that can happen, this is a downside of too much emptiness. Oh, I am empty, everything is impermanent, you know, I'm the you know, okay, you know, so this is happening, you know. Somebody in my family is abusive, but it's all okay because I am empty, it's all empty, you know, it's all a dream. What do you think about that approach? You know, that's the other extreme. You know, so Cornfield addresses this in this chapter. He says that many people are spiritualizing their problems. This is common in Dharma circles, whether it's Buddhist, everything's a dream, or Christian who says it's all God's will. These truths can be misused to refuse personal responsibility. Even the most genuine inner spiritual experience won't help us if we place ourselves above the world of form. So it's form and emptiness. You know, if we if we get too out there, you know, we're not gonna lock the door on the house. You know, we're not gonna remember to do what we need to do. And, and also, we may tend to blame ourselves. Well, the problem is, if I was a better practitioner, and I got it all together, and I was perfect, then everything else would be fine. Rather than, there's things that are outside of their control. There's other things that we can't change. Life happens. And, and how do we respond to it? So this is where the emptiness can support us to not take it personally, to be less reactive, to even see that our own conditioned habitual patterns that with mindfulness and practice we can wake up, we can we can observe them and by being awake and aware that transforms how whether or not we're caught in them. So if I'm noticing like what happened at the locker room it was like you know, it's like all puffed up and irritated like a porcupine and then it's like all the quills went down. It's like, oh, it's just a mind state. It's empty. Oh, projecting. Oh, reacting. And and, and it was so it was so full blown. It was laughable. You know, it's like hey, give me a break. You know, take yourself seriously here, you know. So so this is this is the freedom. That's possible. Um, In The Great Way, from the Third Zen Patriarch, from Verses on Faith of Mind, he says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set indefinitely apart. So how many of us are wandering around samsara going, I like this, I don't want this, this is this is what I ordered, this isn't what I ordered? And I, I have to bring in a little bit of Pema Children to pack the punch. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her in a little comic here. Um, Pema, Pema Children is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who really tends to nail things very directly and has a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. And I'd like to share a little short reading from her on perfection. So now, what does she say about perfection? Remember, we're talking about life, being alive, dying into life, emptiness. Perfection is like death. Perfection is like death. We think that if we just meditated enough or jogged or ate perfect food, everything would be perfect. But from the point of view of someone who is awake, that's death. Seeking security or perfection, rejoicing in feeling confirmed, whole, self-contained, and comfortable is some kind of death. It doesn't have to it doesn't have any fresh air. There's no room for something to come in and, and interrupt all that. We are killing the moment. We're killing the moment by controlling our experience. Doing this is setting ourselves up for failure, because sooner or later, we're going to have an experience we can't control. Our house is going to burn down. Someone we love is going to die. We're going to find out that we have cancer, or somebody's going to spill tomato juice all over your white Suit. <laughs> the essence of life is that it's challenging. Sometimes sweet, sometimes it's bitter. Sometimes your body tenses, sometimes it relaxes or opens. Sometimes you have a headache, and sometimes you feel a hundred percent healthy. From an awakened perspective, trying to ta- tie it up, all all the loose ends. Tie, trying to tie up all the loose ends and finally get it together, is death. Because it involves rejecting a lot of your basic experience, there's something aggressive about this approach, she says. Trying to flatten out all the rough spots and imperfections into a nice, smooth ride. To feel fully alive, fully human, completely awake, is to be continuously thrown out of the nest. To live fully is to be in no man's land. To experience each moment is completely fresh and new. So Charlie Brown is is having a hard time. I don't know if any of you saw Sunday's paper. This is the one from this past Sunday. Um, I don't know if it fits right in here, but it's just too cute. It's about how we get caught. Okay. I feel guilty. He's going to the movies with his buddies, the whole crew, you know, Lucy and Linus and everybody and Patty. I feel guilty about going to the show today. I should be home helping my mother. He moves up the line. I have school work to do. I have a book report to write and about 10 pages of arithmetic he moves up the line. I really shouldn't be going to the show. I feel awfully guilty about it. I should go home. And he moves up the line. I can't really enjoy a show when I feel guilty about going to it. I should get out of line and just go back home. <laughs> and then what does he do? He finally is turned up at the, to get his ticket. One, please. Good old wishy washy Charlie Brown. <laughs> Those you know, how we you know, how could emptiness help Charlie Brown? How could the hearts center help him out? How could it how could it help us when we're we've got Charlie Brown arising mind state, Charlie Brown mind state, where we're always worrying and wondering. want to leave some time for discussion. Um, maybe I'll just briefly share this. I just want to tie in this um, one teaching. Um, one of the ways that we can get grounded in emptiness is seeing the inter- interdependent origination of all things. You know how everything arises out of something else. So this is this is what the Heart Sutra is saying. Is like. There, nothing is really what we think it is. It's not nothing and it's not something. That kind of paradox stops the mind. Right? You Can't figure it out. You hear it and you and it's like the door opens. We we don't think ourselves into awakening. We experience directly. You taste the moment. I was teaching, um, finishing up the last class last night of an eight-week series of the mindfulness space stress reduction. And one of the middle-aged um, people in the class suddenly said, you know what? I am actually really here and present for the first time in my life. I'm not thinking about my work problems. I'm not worrying about what else is going to happen. I'm really here. And his eyes were just luminous. you know. Sometimes it's that simple. So what's the law of interdependent origination? It, it's, it, it, and this is from Andy Olinsky's book on Unlimited Mind. He said, it, to give a basic example of this law, it means that let us consider that anything around us, in our environment, which we interact with, take a bottle of lemonade. For example, if there was no bottle in existence, then the lemonade would not be able to be served for you served to you, at least not in the bottle. If you didn't exist as a customer, the bottle wouldn't be produced at at all, either. If there were no factories, workers, monetary systems, sand on the beach to make the glass for the bottle, none of these things would have been able to exist. The chain of interdependent factors allows us to exist in this universe is endless and interwoven, to include every single individual molecule an entity in existence. Everything is interrelated and interconnected. We could not exist without each other. Repeated after a long time considering the interdependence of all things, we can awaken. You know, we, we get so caught in this individual separate self that we don't realize that its causes and conditions moving through us. We're a living process. So I'm going to just begin to wrap it up here and move towards the interconnectedness of these teachings of the absolute and the relative reality. Mark Nepo describes it this way. Life has always been a secret in the open, and living has always been the art of drawing life out and staying open ourselves. He says that, that um, when we take down the walls, when we take down the constructions that we have about who we think we are and how, you know, all those ideas and, and, and beliefs that don't serve us and patterns, he says, I invite you to do this together. I'm beginning to see that if you take away all a person knows, you are left with the mouth of a fish gulping water as fast as it can. If you take away a person's covering, you are left with the naked freedom of a star. If you take away all a person has done, you are left with a soul eager to build. And if you take away what a person has saved, you are left with a life that has to live now. No, you know, life can be a dance. We're swimming in an ocean of, of being, all together. This is Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering to emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so. I'm going to close with a chant, a different chant, and I'll just read it to you so we have time to talk. This is the Four Limitless Ones chant. May all sentient beings enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. May they or we be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May we not be separated from the great happiness devoid of suffering. May we dwell. In the equanimity free from passion, aggression, and prejudice. Gate, Gate, Paris. So I'd like to open up to any discussion and remind you of the inquiry of what what is my relationship to the absolute and the relative, to how does emptiness inform and bring liberation to my life, you know, or how might it, or anything else you have to say. Okay. So. Comments? Questions? I hope I haven't confused you with my own confusion. <laughs> <laughs> We're all empty. Yeah. What's your name? Stephen. I have to ask, after listening to you, I am a little more confused about what it is. You're more confused what it is? Good. I I I I don't really have more to say that, just like I probably wouldn't have, but I am not sure. My sense is that that actually um and I could be completely off to lunch, is that actually the confusion that comes to the mind. You know, when we think we know something, we've got it. That's actually that kind of death. I think that was saying. That is actually a direct experience. And how you, if even if getting attached to the feeling of empty, emptiness, they call it the stink of sand. You know, when we think, oh, we know emptiness. We're actually we're, we're grasping onto an experience that we're remembering. So again, I don't know, you know, what's happening for you, but um, um, I realize that the ideas, or my understanding of emptiness, actually, I, I feel like I don't, like I don't really know what it is either in this moment. You know? I, I, the mind cannot grasp it, and when I listen to the sutta, I find that my mind begins to go. It can't. It can't. Hang on, Danny. Anyone else? Yes, Tom. Huh. Well, back well, up. Uh, the heart of is has always been a mystery to me. Form is an infamous infamous form, just doesn't set uh, um, my scientific mind. Mm-hmm. So I was reading Jack Harnwell's book. Mm-hmm. Sixth chapter, and I had a sense that he was type of emptiness and form. And that the form was our body is what we experience. And emptiness was—I don't to, to word—but transcendent, mm-hmm. not the spiritual part of life. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm still not sure how to, how to Is that that all what he was saying? You know, I I can't know for sure what um, Jack is talking about. But um, and I had much more material to share to define what emptiness is. And uh, there's a a little um, story in this part of the arrow about emptiness and. Um, when you say form is emptiness emptiness is form when we look closely in meditation in Vipassana where is there a self to be found in the hearing is the heard in the seeing is the seen. everything is a, a moving moment to moment process all the cells are moving so this solid form the solid reality is being is many mind moments vibrating moving changing there's nothing there so, so the form is empty, right? And the emptiness is form. It's 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 co it's rising, passing very quickly. We can't see it. Thoughts, feelings, you know, the mental formations, the sounds, sensations, all. Ch-ch-ch-ch. And in our practice, we be, can begin to see on that level. It actually, is a scientist, if they even refer to that. It goes very well with the physics. What science is finding is confirming the Buddhist teachings. You know what we're finding. What we when we pay attention on the cushion. You know, um, the moment of freedom in the locker room. Oh, just a mind state. Just the mind. You know, aversion. You know, this half, Different, different mind states, reactions, happening moment, and then oh, oh. Um, In this book, he even describes 16 kinds of emptiness. Emptiness of sense objects, emptiness of faculties, emptiness of sensing. Everything is empty. Um, There's no substance to it. Um, It talks about this radical letting go of everything, of all our conceptions and ideas, even our ideas about emptiness. And enlightenment. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like getting the carpet pulled out all, under all the time. You know, we we don't really. You know, we might have taste the present moment, but it can be damned uncomfortable to let go of our constructs. You know, to be that naked. Um, And and there's lots of stories of people having these experiences often in intensive retreats or coming home from them. It can be very disorienting and quite frightening. But then people often describe it, maybe you've heard this metaphor, is like when you experience the empty nature, the groundlessness of life, it's like jumping out of an airplane, but you realize that there's no ground. So it's perfectly safe. It's safe. Still unsettling. Yeah, very unsettling. I mean, that's where like these teachings—they're very, very radical, and they wake us up. And yet, in the moment, in the in the relative reality, each time we we have a moment, a moment where we're not identified with this sense of a separate, solid self. Is a moment of freedom, and it kind of—it's like getting adapted to that water, that experience, and finding out that's really the only place where we're fully alive. Do any of you have an experience? Sometimes it's when something really wonderful happens, like a baby's born, or when there's a trauma. Like it's like time kind of stops, and you're just there, or you—maybe you're—you've been backpacking and you reach that spot. You know, we all have these moments, you know, or you're in love, or you know, where where the boundaries dissolve, type of thing. You know, do you feel afraid then, or do you feel home? You know? Sorry, were you going to say more? Yeah, very, it it it's a it's a strong taste. Freedom is a strong taste. It takes a lot of courage to keep. You know, showing up for that. Um, in fact, in fact, sometimes you know I have to watch not to get discouraged because it's like as soon as the mind opens, it goes, fill it up, fill it up. You know? Yeah? I, I, I often <coughs> find moments in my own life where you see you jump out of the airplane. So it wasn't me that jumped out. It was like I fell. You know, and it's like because the experience is so sublime, there's a strong desire to want have that again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like when you taste that sublimity, I don't know, I know if that's a word, um, it creates like a knowledge that's stronger than any type of knowledge you had tasted before. Um, and that leaves an imprint stronger than any imprint you've had before. But it's still an imprint and you grasp, and and so when you seek that experience again, or you uh, look for what it's like to know emptiness as form and form is emptiness, and the tendency is still there to like use the mind to access that experience. Mm-hmm. It's not the mind at all that is accessing; it's when the mind else away. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sometimes it can be very skillful to bring to mind wholesome states or to connect, bring that to mind. You have to watch for that grasping, that clinging, and that craving to repeat it. Um, there's a lot of stories of, you know, meditators, and I've had some of this myself, where you have a certain a, a sitting or a certain experience. And you 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 want it, and you keep chasing it, and you're and then you're 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 lost in craving, and you don't even know it, you know, or you're you're stuck there. Well, I had this experience, and you get all identified and puffed up with it, or you think you're special, or whatever, and then and then it's distinct, the you know. It, it it's not, you know. Yet yet sometimes bringing to mind, reconnecting, establishing those conditions that support um, awakening and practicing moments of awakening, just dropping, just being, just, you know, um, that can become part of our lived experience. Not as a me, I mean, that's actually where it gets dead in the water. There's a me having an experience of emptiness. (laughs) It's like, yeah. I don't know how I'm to think um, my, my experience, experience be that I guess. Exactly. In fact, one of my teachers, um, and sometimes I've told this story here. Um, forgive me for repeating, but one one retreat I was on, um, my teacher kind of um, said to me, "Stop practicing. <laughs> you now you're trying too hard." I mean, I was just like very serious practice, you know, and he just said, "Stop," you know, because it's like. It, there's a lot of gaining, wanting mind, you know. Um, early on in my practice, and I I mean, you know, now I can laugh at it, but it was like enlightenment or bust, you know. Enlightenment. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and it's actually like, that's actually the, the me that wants to get enlightened. I mean, yes, it's wholesome that I want to practice and I want to awaken, but that, that, you know, brrr, you know, was actually counter. You know, it's it's relaxed, <laughs> open when you let go, and 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 actually it's closer than even three breaths away. Set half a breath right here, right now, and and this is something that can become available to us. Um, some of us here have practiced with Mingyur Rinpoche, the Tibetan uh, teacher, and or Tsoknyi Rinpoche, and and one of the approaches that they have is. Um, Many moments repeated over and over again. Just drop, 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 and that, and that conditions the mind to be able to sustain and get comfortable in em, in the empty nature to Short rest there. Many times. Pardon? Short many times. Thank you, Susan. Yeah. Short times, many times. So here's here's one. not trying to meditate just yeah, we can't, the mind can't accept that it's that simple and that it is already home. We're like the fish in the water that doesn't know that we're in the water, that we're already free OK, um, any last question before announcements or uh, anything on this side of the room? Yeah. I guess um, you know, I, um, I'm trying just to like, kind of be with things as they happen, and allowing things to come and go, or, or um, finding something, like just a new way of doing something that works. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably not going to make any sense, but um, I find that, you know, rather than trying to find a routine that works and keep repeating that routine because it's healthy or whatever, if there's something about me that's always trying to maybe, maybe I could make it better. Maybe if I did it this way, it would be better. And so it's very hard to just rest what one is, you know, or be satisfied with. Um, you know, finding a way to get up in the morning that's easy or something. You know, maybe mm-hmm. if I put my laptop over here, but, you know, so it sets me up for kind of a constant struggle. Great awareness. Yeah. You know, great noticing. Noticing the pattern of mind that constantly has you. You know, adjusting, rearranging. How could we do it better? And you go, oh, ha -ha, There it is. There's that Charlie Brown mine. You know, there, there, there it is. You know, oh well, only if we do this and do that, then it'll be easier. And then da da. And then you're you're figuring out and you're planning and you're arranging. Again, a little of that sometimes makes a lot of sense. Oh right, actually, you know, instead of carrying, carrying this here, I'm more less likely to burn myself if I, you know, pour the tea here. But you know, some of that makes sense. But when it starts to get to be like we're constantly figuring out, you know, well how do I arrange it and get it just so and da 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 Th- then then that's, that's a, what we call a kind of a papancha is the Pali term, the kind of the obsessive mind, you know, that's off running, running and or, or the kind of um, mind state, of restlessness, a craving, wanting to get it perfect, that type of thing. So, you know, we, we watch it, it's not self. So. And you go, oh, there it is. And you can choose that. You can choose. Yeah. But you'll never get it perfect, right? Pema says perfection is like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone, for your questions. And uh, I guess if I've left you confused with, about emptiness, it's, I, hope, I hope that's a good thing. So, um, and you know, check it out.